Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. Today's guest, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. The first time I spent any time in Detroit was the summer of 2013. It looked like the end of America to me. Abandoned skyscrapers downtown, an 18-story train station that's been vacant since 1988 looming at the edge of the skyline, falling apart. I was staying with a friend who took me up to the roof of his building, and I looked out at a city at night that was full of giant patches of darkness. There were no lights. Next time I was back was November 2014, right before Election Day for the midterms that year. The city had changed. First thing, there were streetlights. But there was also a lot of activity, some new buildings, a lot of renovations happening. I had dinner at an interesting restaurant above a John Varvatos store right on the main drag, Woodward Avenue. John Varvatos in Detroit. Uh, But most of the rest of the buildings on the block were still vacant. Then... The next night, I had dinner at Buddy's, one of the famous Detroit pizza places. Detroit pizza is square, baked in a tin. And the person who took me there told me that we had to park under a streetlight because otherwise, the car might not be there when we got out. It sort of captures the contradictions of Detroit. And three years later, the city looks completely different again. There's more construction going on than makes sense. The buildings are cleaner. The block with that John Varvato store is hopping four different construction projects going on just on that block. If Detroit used to look like how America ends, now it looks like one possible answer to how it comes back. And at the center of it is Duggan, a guy who shouldn't, by the conventional rules of politics, have been mayor in the first place and shouldn't be looking at what will likely be a landslide re-election in November. He just won 69% of the vote in the first round two weeks ago. I get into all this and what's happening in Detroit and the complaints there in the story that's up on our website at politico.com. That'll tell you more about him and about the city. Remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. Email me at isaacpolitico.com. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Isaac Dover. And let me know your thoughts on this and our other episodes and who else you'd like to hear. And now, my conversation with Mike Duggan. Tell me about the, the night you decided to run for mayor for the first time. Uh, well, it was something that had been on my mind for a while when I was running the Detroit Medical Center, which was at the time Detroit's largest employer. I had employees coming up to me almost daily saying, you have to run for mayor. At the time, I wasn't a resident of the city of Detroit. I was still in the suburbs. So why were they coming to you? Um, You know, the city was sliding toward bankruptcy. The streetlights weren't on. The police weren't showing up. The ambulances weren't showing up. And at the medical center, the time I'd gone in in 2004, the bankruptcy lawyers had already been hired, and they were planning to shut down three hospitals. And uh, it was just a phenomenal group of men and women I worked with there that turned it around and uh, made it profitable nine straight years and expanded uh, dramatically. So I think the residents uh, of Detroit who worked at the hospital system really felt like uh, you know, it was what the city needed. The final straw for me was one night when I came out of the hospital and drove down Mack Avenue, and it was pitch dark on the streets. And our our patients and their families are going in and out uh, of the hospital on streets that, you know, you couldn't see the hand in front of your face. Uh, And I said, this is ridiculous. We got a city that's so broken, you can't get the streetlights on. Uh, You know, maybe uh, uh, the folks are right. Maybe uh, I should give it a shot. For me, the... the the first time I spent any time in Detroit was the summer of 2013, so it's before your mayor, uh, but while you were running. And then November 2014, I was back here again, and the lights were the first thing that I noticed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 
it just changes the whole character of the city. Well, what was so aggravating was it wasn't a lack of money. I mean, this is the thing that frustrates people, but there was $180 million in a lighting authority to rebuild the lights. And the board of the lighting authority was arguing over, do you start on the east side or the west side? Are the old sodium lights or new LED lights? Are the wires above ground or below ground? Uh, and so city council and I appointed the new lighting authority together, and we just said the national standard is LED lights every 300 feet on neighborhood blocks, uh, much more intense on the main streets. Uh, this is the decision, go. And, uh, you know, the folks managed to install 65,000 lights in two and a half years, and Bill Clinton came through and he said, do you realize you're the largest city in America with 100% LED streetlights, which we looked it up, turned out he was right. Uh, so we were just trying to get uh, the city lit in a sensible way, and it turns out it became one of the great green infrastructure projects in the country. And there was an issue also with the old streetlights that uh, some of them had been raided for the copper wiring and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, you had, you had uh, some theft issues with the underground wires, but that was exaggerated. That was an excuse for poor city management. Uh, there were some times when that happened. Most of the time, the city just let the lighting system decay, and and the old lighting system was was set up like your your Christmas tree lights. If one bulb went out, they all went out, and so you'd have you know two blocks of lights go out at once because of one bulb. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it's the kind of thing that nobody in the last thirty or forty years would have allowed to happen, but. Uh, in Detroit, uh, n- nobody uh, dealt with it. Did the people who were in charge of getting the streetlights and who hadn't done it, s- did they accept responsibility for it? Did the, and, and, and it's a larger question of the people who were running Detroit uh, in the years in which Detroit deteriorated. Is there a responsibility that you see? I don't spend any time on that, but you know, the, there was an emergency manager here who had been here at six months at that point. Mm-hmm. And I said to the emergency manager, what have you been doing? Uh, well, of course, he was focused on the bankruptcy. He wasn't focused on delivering uh, services. Uh, but we didn't spend a lot of time on whose fault it was. But the council and I sat down. We agreed on five people on a board within about three days. Uh, we got Dr. Lorna Thomas, a prominent doctor in town, to chair that board. And she's been relentless at making sure uh, the lights went up and, and we got them done six months ahead of schedule. I think the, the by the conventional rules of politics, you shouldn't have ever been elected mayor, right, by the, the way that we understand it. You weren't living in the city. You got kicked off the ballot. You won on a writing campaign. Uh, you are, we're on a podcast, but uh, I'll tell people who maybe don't know that you're uh, white. You're white uh, <laughs> in a city that is 84% African-American. And now you've been, uh, you, you came out very well uh, ahead in the first round of the election um, against a candidate, uh, the, the second strongest candidate is someone who, as the son of a former mayor, has taken uh, a name uh, that is probably the most famous name in Detroit. Sure. Uh, and was never, and you have to face him again in November, but you, it, it doesn't seem like it's much of a sweat. Uh, why, why did this work? Well, around here, um, you know, my color is not an issue. Uh, so, you know, I was born here. Uh, I've been in this city working every day of my life, and you know I was the elected prosecutor. I'm well known uh, to Detroiters. But when I, I ran for mayor, I did something probably that people didn't expect. I said to the uh, the voters of Detroit, "If you invite me to your home, I'll come." 
And I did 250 house parties in living rooms, in backyards, in basements, uh, and just sat and talked with folks. And when you sit and talk with people face-to-face, all the things that historically divide us go to the background. You get to see each other uh, as people. And it started off with four and five people at a house party, and I was kind of a curiosity, to by the end we were having to go to churches with 100 and 200 people. Yeah, house party is, I know what you call them, but that's not really what they're, it's the, not like there's a, a the, DJ playing. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, you, so it was, it was fascinating, but usually somebody's living room or basement, usually, and they would invite 15 or 20 of their friends, and you go in, a lot of times they'd have coffee and, and some, some finger food, and you just sit down and talk for an hour and a half, and uh, people would tell the story about, I've been on this block for 40 years, and here's what happened, and here's what the drug house down the street did, and here is the... Uh, uh, the potholes that haven't been touched in years. And the plan that I came out with for um, selling the houses on the Internet and moving families into them, getting them renovated, knocking down the ones we can't save, came out of those houses, uh, out of those house parties talking to people. And I think um, when the results came in on Election Day four years ago, uh, you know, we knew ahead of time that it was going to be a, a large win just because every place I went in the city uh, people bought in to, to the plans that were being laid out, really, because they had a lot to do with writing them. It, it's hard to look back on it now as to where things were, but at the time, the idea of a white candidate for mayor was a foreign idea. And so in the early part of 2013, uh, I had people who came to two or three house parties who would say to me, I want to hear you again. Um, because they didn't believe you? Because they, they didn't because, buy it? You know, it's, it's for... An awful lot of Detroiters, um, the election of Mayor Coleman Young in 1973 was an extremely important day. It was, you know, real the first time uh, that the black community had elected a black mayor. And I think there was a feeling that a lot of the problems would get better. In many cases, they did. Uh, But uh, by the time we were heading into bankruptcy, we were into a conversation saying, is the right thing for the black community, maybe hiring the best person. And, and it was a conversation that evolved. But I had a number of people who came to two or three events uh, before they signed up. But without a doubt, being thrown off the ballot is what tipped uh, that campaign. I was in a dead heat uh, with my opponent, Sheriff Napoleon, before I got thrown off the ballot. And I'm not sure I ever would have won the election. Uh, but getting thrown off, there was such a sense of unfairness. I got thrown off for having filed my petition signatures two weeks too early uh, by a two-to-one vote of the Court of Appeals with two Republicans voting to throw me off. The people, Which of was Detroit, related to the residency issue, yeah, too, right? Because you, you had moved into the city to— I, I had right. moved into the city, but, but I filed my signatures two weeks earlier. If I had held on to them two weeks later, it would have been fine. So they literally ruled I filed my petition signatures. It was a new charter— was an ambiguous provision, uh, but people were so angry that I got thrown off on what they thought was an unfair technicality um, that the bonding in the community, I dropped out, I figured I was done, and the people were like marching and, and calling and texting. So I said, I'll try this right in. I'm not sure if this is going to go anywhere. And the pollster came back and said, you're not going to believe this. You're up 10 points. It's a little... Uh, it, you didn't push for it at all to the, the, any of the marches, any of the. Oh the no! Activity? I went up to my cottage. I was done. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I you know I, I had an opponent I deeply respected. Sheriff Napoleon would have been good mayor. Uh, he was more a law enforcement person than a management person. 
Um, but he's somebody I would have supported if I hadn't been running my myself, and I know he felt the same way about me. So I thought, I'm in a dead heat anyway. I have to run a writing campaign. I've never seen one work. There's no reason to go through this anymore. And so I announced I was out, and I left. I mean, the headquarters was shut down. They were moving the Xerox machine out. And after four or five days up north uh, at a cottage where my wife was glad to see me again, I said, you know, if I could just finish in the top two in the primary on the right end, I'm on the ballot in November. And she's like, you got to be kidding. Uh, but, you know, we ended up winning the primary by 20 points on a right end. And it, it just said people were ready for change. And Detroit loves an underdog. And it was the greatest thing. But one of my opponents, a guy by the name of Tom Barrow, who filed the suit that threw me off, is probably the reason uh, I got elected. It's usually not the case that a politician says uh, getting thrown off the ballot was a good thing for my political career. No, and, and my, my lawyer, Butch Hallowell, who lost the case, uh, takes full credit for the election. <laughs> when I was here in 2013, uh, uh, walking around, and again, the city has changed uh, so much that it's, uh, it's hard to actually conceive of it as walking around the last few days uh, here versus my previous visits. Um, but the thought that I remember having in 13 was this is what the end of America looks like. Uh, it was like Roman ruins of a city. That, that's when you're running. Is that what it felt like to you, that the, like, that the city was basically, uh, it's an hour? It was, un, you know, I was appalled at so many things, that the the buses just weren't running and people stood out in the corners in the winter for hours at a time, that every vacant building in the city uh, was covered uh, with graffiti and nobody cared. Uh, it, it just, uh, the lack of anybody caring uh, was heartbreaking. And so uh, I felt like, you know, uh, there was opportunity to, to turn things around. The criticism that uh, one of the criticisms that I hear of you and this is not going to be new to you you've run a campaign you ran a campaign in 2013 and again now that is about neighborhoods uh, but the way that someone put it to me was Detroit is 143 square miles uh, you've done a lot for the eight square miles downtown but it's the what about the 135 other miles uh, when you're out in those neighborhoods in those communities what are those people saying to you that uh, reflects that thinking or that contradicts that thinking? Well, 69% of Detroiters just voted for my reelection, <laughs> so the neighborhoods just voted. Right. Uh, but, but it was a low turnout election. Right? Whatever there's low or high, I carry 95% of the, uh, the precincts. Usually if there's dissatisfaction, the turnout goes up. Uh, but uh, people in Detroit understand that for 60 years, businesses – and citizens have been moving out of the city. And now we've got three years of that being reversed. And uh, the explosion in downtown and midtown uh, has been nothing short of remarkable. And there's 20,000 more Detroiters working today than there were four years ago. It's been a major economic impact. But you can go to Corktown or Sherwood Forest or Boston Edison or the Aviation Sub. You have many neighborhoods in this city that have come back dramatically, where the property values are 100% or more uh, greater than they were three years ago. We have other areas of the city where two-thirds of the houses are vacant, and we haven't gotten to them to the extent that we need to. Uh, and so these conversations are all the same. It depends on what neighborhood you're in. Sure. Um, but people in Detroit see that the recovery is spreading. 
from the most dense areas to the least dense areas. And the dense neighborhoods across the city uh, have seen the most rapid recovery. And if we keep doing what we're doing, uh, it will spread everywhere. And I think the great majority of Detroiters understand that, that you, we're not going to be able uh, to have a full recovery in every neighborhood at once. They had been office buildings sitting empty for 15 years. Yeah, uh, empty skyscrapers. Literally empty right? skyscrapers. The uh, David Whitney, the last tenant, was my dentist. It was, <laughs> and when I go see him, it was like going in the movie The Shining, going down the hall <laughs> in this 20-story building with one guy left. And I never thought I'd see these buildings reopen again in my lifetime. And so it isn't just Gilbert. There's a number of other people. But he started acquiring buildings when, they, when nobody wanted them, started moving his companies in from the suburbs, which then spun off a whole lot of other interests. And the Illich family mm-hmm. has done an enormous amount. Blue Cross, Detroit Edison have all done uh, an, an enormous amount. Uh, and they have been uh, good partners and they're a big part of the reason why the unemployment rate in this city is half of what it was four years ago. Do you think the city's ready to be integrated in a real way? You know, I, um, I think the people of this city believe the city should be open for everybody, overwhelmingly. Uh, and if you come walk on a riverfront on a Saturday or Sunday, and you will see people of every uh, color, every religion, every age, every background – it is interesting now. Detroit has never had that one focal point that was the community center for everybody. And I see the, the families walking the riverfronts, uh, the riverfront on the weekends. And, and now you're seeing the development spread to Beacon Park, the DTE just opened, to Campus Marshes, to the Mount Elliott Water Park, to all these different things. And I think this city, the great majority of people in the city, uh, want a city that's open to everybody. And I finished all 250 of my house parties four years ago uh, in a way that every Detroiter uh, can recite. But I said, look, you're making a decision if you vote for me, that us versus them is over, that you don't want us versus them politics, that it won't matter anymore if you're black or brown or white, won't matter if you're Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, won't matter if you're gay or straight, won't matter if you're born in Detroit or an immigrant from another country, we'll build a city that's open to everybody. Now, I never envisioned the kind of stuff you're seeing in America today, anti-immigrant or anything else. But the people of this city bought into that message in, in a very real way. And, and that's, I think, a huge part of the turnaround is how welcoming Detroiters are uh, to, to everyone. And the big question is, is the longtime Detroiters say, I think it's great that we're open to everybody. I want to know that I'm going to benefit from this recovery. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge. Have you thought about making Detroit a sanctuary city? Detroit is, uh, we have an interesting legal uh, status here. Two cities in Michigan 10 years ago were made something that was called the sanctuary city, but it's not anything like it's defined today. But we passed in Detroit 10 years ago. I wasn't here. I say we. But Detroit City Council 10 years ago and the Ann Arbor City Council passed an anti-profiling ordinance. Mm -hmm. And all police in the last decade have been trained that when you stop somebody at a traffic stop, you run into them on the street, you do not ask uh, for their citizenship. We are not uh, immigration uh, enforcement. That's not our job. Uh, on the other hand, if you arrest somebody for breaking and entering, and it turns out they're here illegally, we inform ICE of that. That's been our position for 10 years. I think it's the right position. It's been supported uh, by the immigrant community here mm-hmm. uh, in a big way. And so Secretary Kelly uh, was here. He's now, I guess, Chief of Staff Kelly. But 
uh, Homeland Security Secretary Kelly was At here. At least for the moment. He's chief uh, of staff. Uh, well, let's hope he stays. Uh, but very impressive man. He came to see me in the spring when he was in Detroit, uh, and I've been very strong on immigrant rights. And he came to see me to say to me he didn't have a problem with the position I was taking. Uh, you know, I wasn't saying we aren't going to cooperate on a criminal matter, but we are not going to be law enforcement for immigration. And it was interesting. Philadelphia had just canceled their Cinco de Mayo parade, mm-hmm. and it's a huge event here in Detroit for the Latino community. And I said to Secretary Kelly, as he was talking about this, I said, if you're sincere about this, our community is debating right now whether to cancel the parade. Uh, if you're telling me that you're only investigating based on specific information and not doing roundups, will you commit, if we go forward on the Cinco de Mayo parade, there'll be no roundups? And he said, I give you my word. You can hold that parade without fear that we won't be out uh, doing the roundups. And so we took him at his word. We had the parade. It was a fabulous event. Um, and so... Uh, we are, we've been as one of 35 cities in America certified as a welcoming committee. Under the Obama administration, I was one of the national spokespeople because we've been taking Syrian refugees here in the Warrendale neighborhood in Detroit. I've greeted a number of them at their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they moved here, I had a, um, a dinner at my house during uh, Ramadan uh, to break the uh, fast, and we had a number of the Syrian refugee families mm-hmm. over to the house for dinner. So we have, I think, hit the right balance of being very strong pro-immigration, but I'm a former prosecutor. If you break the law or a fellow agency asks for your help on a specific uh, criminal activity, the feds cooperate with us when we ask them on something. Uh, I believe in in mutual cooperation on a specific law enforcement action. You talked about uh, families walking around on the waterfront and uh all the new people who are working in Detroit, moving into Detroit. But a big problem here is the schools. Uh, And so I wonder what you say to uh, a young couple that has moved to Detroit but is planning to have kids and thinks there are no schools here. Uh, We've got to move out. The the, the schools aren't there or they aren't good. uh, what, What do you do about that? Isn't that... Uh, the yeah. essential problem here? It, it's, it's a huge problem. It's without a doubt the, the number one issue holding the city back. And in Detroit, the mayor is not in charge of the schools. Sure. as an independently elected school board. problem was for nine years, the schools were run by a governor-appointed emergency manager. And in that time, the schools were devastated. We lost half the enrollment, closed half the schools. Um, and uh, uh, it has been a real problem. And De- Detroiters believe in choice. We have 100 Detroit public schools and 100 charter schools. Uh, Detroiters believe in choice, but even with 100 uh, traditional and 100 charter, 30,000 Detroiters get up in the morning and go to school at a building outside the city's boundaries. Uh, So we have a newly elected school board. Finally, after nine years, the voters got self-determination back. Uh, Outstanding school board's been elected. They've hired a superintendent and a deputy superintendent that I think are the finest team of educators I've seen at Detroit Public Schools in a long time. Uh, and I'm confident they're going to get the schools going in the right direction. So, well, what's I, the uh, what's the timeline on that? You've seen a lot of construction, not only downtown but all over the city. Uh, can school construction be at that same uh, well, pace? Well, schools are in good shape. The problem isn't the physical buildings. We've got buildings that were, you know, built four or five years ago that are spectacular buildings that are two thirds empty because parents didn't feel like their children were being educated well in the building. So our issue is not the physical buildings. Our issue has been the quality of the education. Um, And when you have teachers year after year 
being told they get pay cuts and benefit cuts and the like, it's hard to keep good teachers. But I, I saw this week they just hired 150 more teachers. They're starting to have success. Uh, nobody wants to hear talk. They want to see results. But I think this year you're going to see uh, a serious improvement in the performance of Detroit public schools. And uh, nobody wants to hear if you're a parent well, this year the schools aren't so great, but stick with us for two or three years. No, 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 no parents are going right. to put up with it. Uh, and, and so one of the things that you know, aggravates me is in Michigan we have essentially an open borders. If, if a Detroit child goes to school in the River Rouge School District, their, their per-pupil funding goes with them to River Rouge. So there's a huge so door-knocking yeah. marketing campaign in the city and, and I've said to, to Dr. Vitti, the new superintendent, there are corners in Detroit where there's a lawn sign that says River Rouge School Bus Stop, placing them in the city. I'll say, I told him, I'll know you've succeeded when I go into River Rouge and see a sign that says Detroit Public School Bus Stop here. That's, that's your goal. And he's taken that out as a challenge. Is that a 2019 thing? Yeah, Is that I, a you know, 2030 I, this, thing? The schools are not under my yeah. control, so you have to talk to Dr. Vitti about that. All I can tell you is I'm very impressed in what I'm seeing in leadership. I'm hopeful in the schools for the first time in a long time. Parents are going to get a chance to judge uh, for themselves this year, and they'll make up their own minds. How long do you think you'll stay mayor for? Your campaign manager told me that uh, he'd love for you to stay mayor for 20 years. Yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> how, how Coleman Young did this job for 20 years, I have no idea. It's physically uh, much too demanding. He had to have been a medical uh, miracle. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, if uh, I've worked as hard as I can the last four years, and if the voters decide to rehire me, I'm going to work as hard as I can the next four years. This was a scenario mapped out for me for some, by someone. Uh, it, it looks like you're going to be okay for re-election in November. Uh, I don't take anything for granted. You're a politician, and you that's the, that's the way to be. But uh, you have a governor's race in Detroit next year uh, with several candidates running on the Democratic side, but nobody who's as well-known as you are. Uh, you have some strong Republicans running. You personally have had a very good relationship uh, at points with Governor Snyder. Once the emergency manager was right. gone, he and I got along a lot better, <laughs> yes. Uh, as I said, at points. Uh, but it doesn't seem that it would necessarily be the case that with either of the two Republican frontrunners, if they were the governor, uh, that you would have that same kind of good working relationship, that there might be a, uh, a scenario, a path that would be mapped out for you that, uh, that it would be harder to be mayor of Detroit and get things done for Detroit if that was what happened in Lansing. And so that might bring you into the governor's race. There's no circumstance under which I'm running for governor. That's None. Not, zero. There's no chance. Even if they uh, did, did another draft movement. nothing like... about Lansing that remotely appeals to me. <laughs> uh, so, no. I never would have left the job in the hospital for, for the governor's spot. Uh, this is the city where I was born, and, and I'm here as long as the voters of Detroit decide they want to rehire me. Uh, but uh, I will work very hard to get a Democratic governor elected. Uh, and if we don't succeed at that, I'll work really hard at building a relationship uh, with the governor who's there. But uh, right now, I'm just focused on getting through the next 11 weeks of my own campaign. Does it concern you, the change in federal policy also? Sure. That, uh, in what ways? You know, I mean, I had Joe Biden on my cell phone. I mean, you know, it was uh, the, the Obama administration 
was just so enormously. Well, you still have Joe uh, Biden on your cell phone. He I just do. can't. And he, did, and he did. He did a robocall for me the night before the election. Which you called him, and, right? That was I did. you just called him up and had him I do did. it. Well, he, he he said to me several times, "Tell me what you want me to do. You want me to come into a fundraiser?" So I called him. I said, "Okay." Here's what I need. He says, this is going to take me five minutes. I'm sure you don't want anything else. But it was very effective uh, because we had identified uh, our voters through knocking on more than 100,000 doors. I just wanted to make sure they turned out because I was fearful of a, a low turnout uh, uh, race. But I had a great relationship with almost all the cabinet officers. Uh, and, uh, and now I think we could potentially build a relationship. I felt like I was building a good relationship with Secretary Kelly. Uh, ben Carson is from Detroit. Uh, he came here in his first visit as uh, after he was confirmed. I had him over to the house for dinner, he and his wife, Candy. Um, but there doesn't appear to be any strategy. Uh, I mean, they're just so caught up in one crisis after another that there's nobody to work with. Um, and so that's been a problem. They haven't done anything to hurt us. It's just that whereas under the Obama administration, you could say, I've got this idea uh, for demolitions. I've got this idea for green infrastructure. I've got this idea for a bus system. And you could get the senior administration officials to sit down with you and figure out how to do it. Um, so we'll see what happens. But right now, it's it's just chaos, and there's nobody to work with. And Joe Biden, people in Detroit responded to him calling, huh? Oh, or the robocall. He's, he's loved here. He's just completely loved here. Uh, if he, he had, you know, I, I, I spent time with him, I know, with after he lost his son. And if it had been a different point, you know, he w- he would be president now. One of the times that I was in Detroit was when uh, he was here for the bus program being unveiled. I was traveling with him, and so I was at that event, uh, which consisted of uh, part of it. He got on one of the buses and that was parked, but was walking around talking about how he drove a, a bus when he was a, a school bus when he was in law school. Which, uh, I don't. It's sort of strange to think of Joe Biden behind the wheel of a school bus, but uh, <laughs> you know, it was so funny. Uh, he, he called me from Croatia because, you know, he came in a number of times. I said, if you can do one thing for me, you know, 40% of the buses are broken yeah. down in the garage and people have no way to get to work. Uh, and I understand there's money all over America that different transit systems aren't claiming. Um, and, and he called me from Croatia. He says, I got a solution for you. He says, I can't just move it from other cities, but we've got $100 million nationally that you were right. wasn't going to be spent. We're going to do a national competition. You're going to have to compete. Well, we ended up with $25 million. We got the 80 buses. We put 79 of them on the road. Yeah. And he said, I just want to come out the day you put the 80th. So we held the 80th bus back for him until he was able to come through town. Conveniently, it was at that moment in uh, the fall of 2015 when he just kept stopping in places that might have been helpful had he run for he, president. He was, he was that, <laughs> I know that day he was heading for Ohio when yep. he called and said, hey, can we do the 80th bus? Uh, and, of course, people in Detroit love him. But he did. He, you know, when the phone rings and it was one, I can't remember what the international insult was. He says, I'm, he says, look, I'm sorry I haven't gotten back to the buses. I'm in Croatia. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is a remarkable man. Well, he was the vice president. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to bring you back to thinking about Lansing for a minute and, and, uh, and Wayne County overall and uh, the, the difference that it's made to the Detroit metro area. Um, somebody said to me uh, that, even in 2013, before you were elected, that just when it looked like you were going to win, then the investment started pouring in. Uh, you talked about the racial dynamics in the city in terms of the voters, but I wonder, do you think it has made a difference to the people in Lansing that there's a white mayor of Detroit? No. 
when I was at the Detroit Medical Center, the Detroit Medical Center treats a quarter of all the Medicaid patients in the state of Michigan. It's an eight-hospital system. Uh, and uh, in the nine years I was there, there was Republican and Democratic leadership in the legislature. And every single year, we had great support from the state, whether it was Republican or Democrat, because I went up and showed them uh, the care that we were delivering, the value that if you got people in to the doctor and treated them well, it was far better off than waiting till there's a crisis in the emergency room. And I had strong bipartisan support for nine years at the medical center. So it was a natural thing. I think it was more a function of my long-term relationships, and I think the credibility the medical center had been bailed out by the state the year before I was hired. They blew the bailout money and were hiring a bankruptcy lawyer. And I think the legislature appreciated it and never came back in nine years and never asked for a bailout again. So when I came up to see them in 2014 and said, here's the grand bargain deal, I won't ever be back to you on a bailout request uh, in the future, I think there was a track record and credibility. You don't think it was a factor at all, the racial no. stuff? I, I, think, I think it was a relationship base. I really do. I mean, you'd have to ask the individual legislators, sure. but, uh, you know, I have strong relations with Republican leadership and strong relations with Democratic leadership, and I have for, you know, really a long time. If you're going to run an urban hospital, you'll find this in any city in America. If you're running a big urban hospital, those CEOs have strong relations with the Republicans and the Democrats in their state houses because the reality is in an urban hospital, you're treating a high degree of uh, Medicaid, um, uninsured Medicare patients. You're, you're essentially a public institution, even though you're not technically. You wanted to have the reins of Hillary Clinton's vote operation in Detroit, and they said no. Uh, she was 82,000 votes down in Wayne County, about 50,000 votes down in Michigan. You're closing your eyes. <laughs> uh, she lost uh, 50,000 votes under in Detroit City. About uh, She lost Michigan by 10,700 votes about. Would she have won uh, Michigan if you had been in charge? The good news is that Michigan did not tip the balance. Uh, so Bill Clinton is one of my favorite people in the world and a good friend. And uh, I would have done anything I could for them. Of course, he wasn't listened to either in the uh, in the campaign. But it doesn't really matter because Michigan uh, didn't decide the election. Uh, uh, Trump would have won no matter what. So I don't spend a lot of time. But that sounds agonizing. like a yes that you feel you like. You know, I, I, I don't, I, you know. I, we don't need everybody's a genius in hindsight. I had my issues with them at the time, but it doesn't matter because it, had Michigan decided this election, I probably would have been haunted by that for a long time. But it was it, it wouldn't matter. One of the things about Michigan that I think is interesting as a state overall is that it's at the heart of a debate that's going on in the Democratic Party overall, which is do you chase the white working class voters who uh, either didn't turn out or flipped from supporting Democrats to supporting President Trump? Or do you go for the disaffected voters who are not white working class voters who obviously, just by the percentages, many of them in Detroit who didn't turn out were not white? Uh, what do you think, other than the, the standard right, politician I, should go I, after I, everything? I completely disagree with that analysis. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that you had a lot of blue collar workers here who were willing to work hard, get new skills, uh, to raise their standard of living, who wanted the opportunity 
that the Clinton campaign didn't speak to them. But there were a whole lot of African-American Detroiters who were willing to work really hard, get new skills, and have their uh, standards of living being raised who feel like Blue collar, whether been, they were white or black. A- yeah. Absolutely be- feeling like they're being left out. And it was interesting. I spent time, you know, registering voters in front of shopping centers. And the number of African-American Detroit voters who didn't want to vote because they didn't think it would make uh, a difference uh, because they didn't believe, they said, if, if Barack Obama in eight years didn't create opportunity for me, why is Hillary Clinton going to do more? And actually, the conversation wasn't that different. It's just that when you had Donald Trump embracing the David Dukes of the world, uh, it, it overrode the economic message. But I think there is a far uh, greater alignment between people of color and Caucasians who want to work hard, want to get new skills, want to benefit from a stronger economy, then there is a difference. I think the, the difference uh, it was terribly handled uh, by the Democrats, but I also don't think it's being handled very well by the Republicans. At some point, somebody in this country is going to figure out that no matter what color you are, what people want is opportunity to work hard, get more skills, and raise the standard of living for their family. And if anybody ever figures that out, Joe Biden got it. Bill Clinton got it. But it's somehow we don't seem to have that many. I feel like you're, you're ready to uh, chair the Biden 2020 campaign. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, if, I'd do anything uh, Joe Biden uh, wanted to do. Uh, I want to... Uh, getting to the close here, but one person that we didn't talk about, another Michigander uh, who is in the federal government now, is Betsy DeVos. She was very involved in the school situation no. in Michigan. Has she was she good for Detroit no. school children? No. Why not? Yeah, you know, there's, there's no there's no percentage in shooting at the Secretary of Education, but uh, um, but it was there was far more interest in a political agenda than in educating kids. And uh, um, but she's in Washington now, and we have a new group in Lansing, and. Do you feel like any of that, uh, that your feelings about her might get adjusted by what she's doing now in, tr- she's in charge doing, of the Department of Education? She's doing the same thing in Washington that she did here. All I pushed for was legislation that says we should have performance standards that apply equally to traditional schools and charter schools. Everybody's measured on the same uh, basis. And I had a proposal to do that that was backed by the Chamber of Commerce, the Republican governor, the charter school operators in Detroit stood up with me and said, we're not afraid of being measured. And she shot the bill down because she wanted there to be no review whatever of charter school performance. I don't think that was right. Uh, I think everybody ought to be uh, measured, but that's something she and I philosophically uh, disagree with. But at this point, she's in Washington. She doesn't directly affect our lives anymore, and at some point we are going to get a fair standard. That I'm a I'm pro-choice. I believe that pro parent, school choice, pro school yeah. choice, and pro-choice <laughs> overall, right? But I believe a parent should have a right to decide between good quality public schools, traditional schools, and good quality charter schools, and that should be that parent's choice. Uh, but I think there's got to be quality choices, and you ought to demand quality out of both the charter and the traditional schools. And that was where uh, the secretary and I disagree. Have you talked to her since she became secretary? No. Last thing here, there's a movie out called Detroit. It's right. been a little controversial. Have you seen it? Yeah. What do you think of it? It was very powerful. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I was here then. I mean, it was a very difficult time. It was very powerful. And, you know, for Detroiters, it was, uh, um, uh, you know, it was very emotional.
What do you make of the reaction that's been to that movie? I haven't paid that much attention to it. <laughs> I just know around here, the reaction has been a lot of people sharing stories uh, about the way the police department uh, treated them in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and a lot of conversation about how much better the police department is today with its commitment under Chief Craig to neighborhood policing. So the conversation in Detroit is is some painful retelling of old experiences, but also, I think, it's very good feeling about where the police department has gone. And you know, the, the criticism sort of rooted in she, Catherine Bigelow is a, a white director, sort of a white perspective on it. That's not the way it looked I, to you. I, you know, I, I, that's that movie stuff. I'm not really uh, <laughs> that now. I, I reacted to it personally as somebody mm-hmm. who was here at the time, um, and uh, it was very it was, for Detroiters. It was a powerful movie. Yeah. Mayor Mike Duggan, right. thanks for taking the thanks time. Thanks for having me. That was Mike Duggan, Mayor of Detroit. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy. Remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. Great episodes coming up, including with famed labor leader Dolores Huerta. Catch you next time on Off Message.